morning and welcome. It is good to see you here this morning. I'm glad you all have arrived here this morning. Uh, you know, there's something about arriving at a destination which is, uh, can be satisfying. Uh, I learned a long time ago that really the journey is as important as the arrival. My wife taught me that when I felt like we needed to drive straight through for 25 hours to get from Wisconsin to Montana or wherever we were going. Uh, and, uh, and she slowed me down, and now I enjoy the journey much more. It's the stopping at 3 in the afternoon, though, that, you know, but anyway, uh, we are glad you are here today. You know, the great reformer Martin Luther observed about life. He said, our life is a beginning and a progress. It is not a consummation. A beginning and a progress. It is not a consummation. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul wrote in the letter to the Corinthians, he said, my job was to plant the seed in your hearts, and Apollos watered it, but it was God, not we, who made it grow. And so we're on this journey, you know, whether it's at our place of employment, in our church families, in our own families, in our homes, we may not see all of our plans come to fruition. I think of missionary biographies I've read about missionaries who have spent their lives translating scripture, preaching and teaching the word and witnessing to foreign people and yet seeing only a handful respond to the gospel. Or you might think of a businessman who puts all his efforts into his business only to see it ruined because of the global economy or other factors that he has no control over. Or perhaps even in marriages where we see a husband or wife after 30 years of marriage, it fails because their other spouse no longer loves them. And so we see this aspect of our lives, this journey we're on. And the psalm we're going to look at today, Psalm 132, it speaks of David's vision to build a dwelling place for God. And the fact that he was unable and by God's design was not the one to build the temple in Jerusalem, but his son Solomon was. And David did not witness the fulfillment of that dream and that personal calling that he felt in his life. And yet he was still a man after God's own heart. And so when we think about arrival, especially, we go to this psalm. Remember the psalms we're looking at. We're looking at the psalms of ascent or the psalms of degrees, and they were... They are Hebrew poetry that was probably set to music, and as the pilgrims would go up to Jerusalem three times a year, as commanded by God, they went up <clears throat> to the temple and up to Mount Zion, which is the temple mount in Jerusalem, as God commanded them clear back in Exodus these three times per year. And as they went up, uh, as I've said before, they did not have air-conditioned tour buses. They walked. <laughs> And they would go up and they would sing these psalms, these, these 15 psalms from Psalm 120 to 134. And it would remind them of why they were going. It would remind them of their condition in life, remind them that they're on a journey. They were pilgrims, if you would take it that way. And in the same sense, you and I are pilgrims. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are on the path of the Christian life, this pilgrim pathway. Derek Thomas has written that the Christian life is a road trip. It's a journey of the most exhilarating kind. It has a starting point and a terminus. It is a metaphor of movement. Christians do not stay in one place too long, for they are set for another location. Early Christians were referred to as followers of the way. 
a reflection that they seem determined to follow a different path. We see that in the book of Acts. And, of course, ancient Israel, the, the nation of Israel, they were pilgrims as they went up to worship and went up to observe the things that God had commanded them to observe. As we've gone through these songs of ascent, we have seen that there are patterns in these psalms, this songbook or hymn book for travel, if you will. And uh, for each three songs, we've seen that there is a psalm of distress, a psalm of confidence in God, and finally a psalm of security. And that cycle is repeated for every three psalms, beginning in Psalm 120. So there's a pattern and a cycle, but now we get to Psalm 132, and it is really about arrival at the place of worship, at the very dwelling place of God. And so now we are arriving, and actually some believe that when the pilgrims would reach Mount Zion or Jerusalem or the Temple Mount, uh, they would start singing Psalm 132, 133, and 134 because they have arrived, and we see a movement in there. It is the end of the pilgrimage, and so they sing about it. The Lord is with us in Psalm 132, as we will see in a moment. Psalm 133, God's people are in perfect fellowship with one another. And then also in Psalm 134, the Lord's servants are serving in the Lord's sanctuary. So it has this whole aspect. No longer they are in distress, but because of their singing about confidence and security, now they have arrived at the, the goal, the, the, the terminus of their pilgrimage at that time. And so sometimes we see that we are filled with mixed emotions in this. And this was the case with the ancient pilgrims who would move up on their way to Jerusalem after uh, many miles of travel for some of them. Psalm 132, it's difficult to date when this was written. Remember, the songbook of Israel was uh, collected at a certain time, and these were called the Songs of Ascent. If you look at Psalm 132, the Songs of Ascent, we'll see that uh, it's probably after the Babylonian captivity. The Babylonian cap captivity, some almost <clears throat> 600 years after the reign of King David. Remember, Israel was taken in captivity into Babylon. And uh, so it was some 400 years after David, actually. And so one thing that Babylon did when they came into Jerusalem and destroyed Jerusalem is they destroyed two key institutions in the life of the faithful Jewish people, the Israelites. They destroyed the temple and they destroyed the monarchy, both critical institutions in the life of Israel at that time. And so early, this uh, post-exilic community, as they're called, when they returned back to Jerusalem, they rebuilt the temple about 537. Of course, it was not like Solomon's temple, the one before, and yet there was a place of worship. And in the Jewish mind, God resided as he had from the Exodus, resided in the, in the pillar of fire by day and the cloud by night, and then in the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, and the, that moving tent that went with them as they migrated from Egypt and were refugees and went into the land of promise in Israel. And so God's presence or the symbols of his presence. We know that no building and no box or anything can hold God. And it was symbolic of his presence with his chosen people, with the people of Israel. And so we see that even though the temple was rebuilt after they returned from Babylon, from this captivity, and it was a cause of great joy. You can read about that in the book of Ezra, chapter 6. It was also a time for joy of the pilgrims as they walked up to Jerusalem to see this temple after the captivity. 
But from their perspective, there was no Davidic king. David was promised a throne forever. There was no Davidic king reigning over Israel in spite of the promise that David had received, which we will get to in a moment. And Psalm 132 provides these pilgrims with a longing of the heart for the coming son of David, the Messiah, to reign over them. Remember, they'd been observing the Passover since the time of the Exodus, and the Passover was a picture of this coming Savior, this Messiah, who is going to rescue them from all their troubles and be the Savior for them. And so there was a longing in the Jewish heart for this Messiah to come. Psalm 132 is the longest of the songs of ascent. It is the longest one, and so we may break it into two. I'll see how my time goes here. There's a lot to cover here. It is probably, in, in, in my preparation, a more difficult psalm because there's a historical background we must understand. One thing about uh, uh, interpreting Scripture, a major portion is the history, the historical setting, and the original intent of the author. As I've said many times before, all of Scripture was written for us, but not all of it was written to us, if you can understand the difference. For example, back in the law, it said, never boil a kid in its mother's milk. I have never done that. I have kept that perfectly. Well, that wasn't written to me. That was written to the Jews of that day in civil and ceremonial laws under the law. And so we come to this Psalm 132, and there's two major portions, verses 1 through 9 and 10 through 18. And within 1 through 9, each one of those major sections has two subsections, which we will look at the first one today, the preeminence of God in our lives and the response of worship to the preeminence of God in our lives. And so we see that. But I want you to turn back very briefly to the book of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7. We'll get some historical background, and that will help us understand what this prayer and this song was about and why they sang it when they came to Mount Zion, why they came to Jerusalem, and what is the point of all of that. And so we come to 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 14 or 12. Let me start in verse 12 for you. And he's speaking to David. He's speaking to David. David has had a desire. He's living in a house of cedar, which is really something. And he desires a place, a dwelling place for God. And God says, well, Nathan, God's spokesman, says to David, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendants after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And here's the key verse, verse 16. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne will be established forever. That is known as the Davidic covenant, and it is one of the unconditional covenants in Scripture. Of course, we're familiar with the Abrahamic covenant, that God made a covenant with Abraham back in Genesis that he would have land, seed, and a blessing, and he promised him, even in his advanced age, that there would be a a, a son coming from his own body, and that would become a great nation, so land, seed, and blessing. And the blessing comes in the Messiah, this promised one, clear back to Genesis 3.15, and so... 
David wanted to make sure God had a place, you know, that symbolic place of residence for him. And so that is the background, is the Davidic covenant, the promise that this Davidic line, which the Messiah is prophesied to come from, would be established. There's some things we need to understand about the provisions of this Davidic covenant. First of all, there are promises related to David here in 2 Samuel. He would have descendants. He would have a son who would succeed him and establish his kingdom in verse 12. He would have a kingdom, David's house, throne, and kingdom would be established forever, verse 16. However, and this is where some of the rub comes with some people, especially our Reformed friends, is the covenant did not guarantee uninterrupted rule by David's family, although it did promise the right to rule would always remain with David's dynasty. Because we know right now there's not a descendant of David. It wasn't at this point of Psalm 132. That's why they're crying out for the monarchy. So it was interrupted. But the Babylonian captivity, of course, interrupted Davidic rule. But it goes on. This is God's whole promise to bring the Messiah. And the promises related to Solomon in this was the temple. Rather than David, it would be Solomon who would build the temple in verse 13. The throne would be established forever, again, verse 13, and Solomon would be punished for his disobedience. He'd be chastened for his sins, but he would not be disposed. The line would go. Remember, Saul Saul was disposed, and he was not used by God. He was not in God's plan, but David's line is in God's plan. And so the royal psalms, all of the royal psalms uh, in the, the book of Psalms, attest to this Davidic kingdom, and this is one of the royal psalms in Psalm 132. So that is the background. Well, as we read this, uh, let me read the first section here, verses 1 through 5. Remember, O Lord, on David's behalf, all his affliction, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. Surely I will not enter my house, nor will I lie on my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. And so we see here in this passage and in this psalm that there are four responses. One of the things in preaching and Bible interpretation is called the ladder of abstraction. There are times when there is a direct correlation across the board, but there are other times we have to move up this ladder of abstraction to understand how it applies to us today. Because obviously this was written to Israel. This is written to observant Jews. This was written a long time ago. How does it apply to us? We have to ask the question, so what does this matter? But remember, he says here that remember, O Lord, this is someone, the psalmist, whoever wrote this, we don't know, but it is the people singing out, remember, O Lord, on David's behalf. They're looking back at that Davidic covenant back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and they want God, they're reminding God to remember what David said and what David was doing. They're asking that they should, that God would remember and favor all of the things that David has gone through. Notice in verses 3 through 5, Surely I will not enter my house, nor lie on my bed, or I will give sleep to my eyes, or slumber to my eyelids, until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. This is a figurative speech. He obviously didn't stay awake all the rest of the years of his life, and he obviously did not enter his house, but it's a way of saying that God is to remember that David's oath, by the way, which isn't recorded anywhere else in Scripture, it's only recorded here, 
uh, that he would not rest until he found a place for his life. He was focused on what God was calling him to do. This refers to David's desire probably to build the temple, uh, but it's a figure of speech. I will not rest. We say that. I'm not going to rest till I accomplish this. Well, we do physically rest, but our minds are focused on whatever it is that we are going. William uh, Graham Scroge, a, a preacher from years ago, said that God remembers us individually. He remembers our afflictions, our troubles, our humblings. He remembers what we purpose in our hearts for his glory. The Lord who is asked to remember is the mighty God. And that's what this ends up with. Uh, Mighty one of Jacob, a reference to God himself. So in verses 3 through 5, we see that and have to ask the question in our own lives. Do we have that same passion, that same desire to see God glorified in our lives, in the life of our community, whatever it is? In other words, is Jesus Christ simply prominent in our lives Or is he preeminent, to borrow the phrase from another's preacher another time? Is he prominent or is he really preeminent? And here we're talking about what is called lordship. Now, here at Grace Point Church, we believe in salvation by grace through faith. And it is simply believing in the Lord Jesus Christ for everlasting life. John 3.16, read the Gospel of John. That is the condition to receive the consequence of everlasting life. But that's not the end of the story. Once we believe in Jesus for everlasting life, that's called justification. Then there's this big part before we go go to be with Jesus, when he either catches us away or we pass away, is this called what we're living right now, this pilgrim journey called sanctification, where he is saving us from the very power of sin, saving us from the very, excuse me, the very presence of sin. He has saved us from the power of sin, Uh, at our justification, but he's saving us from the very presence of sin in in the sanctification process, and that is called lordship. The idea is that we decide, we have a decision in the matter with our will if I'm going to follow him or not, if I'm going to have him be preeminent in my life or simply prominent. I think there are many Christians where Jesus, yes, is prominent. You know, we come to worship, we do these things, but is he preeminent? Is he the one? David made this solemn contract. He made this oath, and it's really kind of unwise to make oaths, vow oaths, oaths as we know, and yet he wanted to see God in literalness to be taken care of in what he thought he was called to do. So we give God preeminence in our lives, and that is the question. Is he preeminent or is he just simply prominent in our day-to-day lives? Secondly, uh, we are to express <clears throat> Joyful worship in verses 6 through 9. In verse 6, he says, Behold, we heard of it in Epaphtha. We found it in the field of Jar. Let us go into the dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place. You are the ark of your strength. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your godly ones sing for joy. There is an expression, if God is preeminent in our lives, if Jesus Christ is preeminent, that it will respond, we will have a response of worship. There's an expression of worship. And oftentimes we, we categorize worship as simply the singing we do here on a Sunday morning. But really we are to lead lives of worship, whether we are by ourselves up in the mountains or out on the farm field or at our place of work, wherever we find ourselves, that we can worship God and worship is an act of the will where we are going to express and give God the credence and the glory that he, he is to respond. 
Jesus, if he is preeminent, we are going to have a response of worship, a life of worship. You know, uh, this afternoon is a, a great example of people worshiping. About 3.30 our time, there will be some people worshiping their favorite team uh, at this thing called the Super Bowl, this great national holiday that we have today. And I was asked a few weeks ago uh, what team I was rooting for. And in the vernacular of another generation, I just said, meh, (laughs) meh, you know. And uh, I think another West Coast team should be in that (laughs) Super Bowl. I was going to dye my hair and paint my face, but that wouldn't have worked. But uh, when I think about that, I think of worship. And I think of a quote, uh, a story I read by Rod Cooper. I heard Rod Cooper preach in Chicago a couple of times. And uh, he writes that he was a chaplain for some professional teams down in Houston when he lived in Houston. And after he'd do chapel for the players and the staff, he was given tickets to the games. And he said one time he was in the Astrodome, and he watched Earl Campbell run for a touchdown. And when he got to the goal line and he put the ball down, the whole place went crazy. People were giving high fives and jumping around. The scoreboard went off. And the same thing happened after the Astros hit a home run. It was a ringing shot because it was just a big shout because people wanted to praise the team and the player and We're winners because that's our team, you know. And then Rod Cooper goes on to say, I'm not saying that when you come to church, you need to give give each other high fives or do cartwheels down the aisle. But worship is a time of anticipation, expectation. We come together because all week long, God has been doing amazing, great things in our lives. Worship is a time to celebrate what God has done for us. In verses 6 through 7, he talks about this dwelling place, if you look at it, it's so important when he says in verse 7, let us go to this dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. They're talking about the very presence of God. Of course, in the Old Testament economy in Israel, uh, it was symbolic that God resided on Mount Zion. They'd have to go to his place because they were not indwelt, indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. That is the difference between the Old Testament economy of Israel and the church age that began in Acts chapter 2. The distinction is in the church age in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes upon believers and indwells us, according to the Apostle Paul. So we don't pilgrim, make a pilgrimage to a holy site where we believe God resides and the rest of our lives and days he's not even around. No, because he resides within us in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ will never leave us or forsake us. He advocates and intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father. He is our great high priest. We don't have to go to a building. I remind you, this is not a church, this this architectural structure. You are the church. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are the living stones. You are the ones. And so no matter where we go, if you believe in Christ for everlasting life, you take the Holy Spirit with you. He goes with you. He knows everything that you go through and what's going on in your life. So this dwelling place, this footstool is just a picture poetically of God's presence. And so for the Israelite, they would go up because they needed a reminder that God was the mighty God of Israel. And uh, so they went up to this place. And it tells us at verse 9 that, and let your godly godly ones sing for joy, sing for joy. That Hebrew word means to utter loudly or to shout. It means shouts of joy, joyful singing. 
It's used to summon uh, the heavens, the Gentiles, and most frequently the people of God collectively and individually to rejoice in God's blessings. And it was a challenge to me this week. Uh, First of all, can I remember and see any God's blessings again? Do we have eyes to see what God is doing? And uh, do I rejoice in those things? Loud rejoicing in the Lord is based upon his greatness and his goodness to us. Worship is a time to celebrate. And that's not just Sunday morning, but that's all through the week. And so we go in that expressing joyful worship. And the only way you can express joyful worship, you can't well it up in your heart. It's a response to what God is doing. It's a response to what you've been learning from the word of God. It's a response to the character of God as he's revealed it to you. Expressing, responding in joyful worship. Well, the next two major portions, verses 10 through 12 and 13 through 18, first of all, to remember God's promises and then to trust God for his blessings. You know, the Christian life and this pilgrimage is a life, a walk of faith. Yes, we put one foot in front of the other as we live the Christian life day by day. But do we remember his promises? Do we trust him for his blessings? We are going to complete this next week. Remember, in these, uh, sometimes in the TV shows, they leave you hanging, okay? And you got to wait till next week or wherever you can get it on Netflix to get the next episode so you find out what happens. Well, that's what we're going to do because we have the Lord's table to observe today. And, uh, but just let me leave you with this one illustration, another football illustration. Forgive me. Here we go. But the Chicago Bears, Dub Bears, football team, uh, they presented a series of videos uh, some time ago uh, following the team's rookies when the season began. You know, the rookies were new to the team on their first arrival at training camp and on through the preseason. And one video showed part of coach, remember, Lovey Smith? He was their coach at the time. First orientation talk with the rookie class. Of course, it was the, the biggest thing in each one of the rookies' minds is, am I going to meet the team? Will I make the team? And rookies know that the team roster begins with 80 players when they come to camp. And then after a few weeks, the coaches cut the team down to 65 players. And then before the season actually begins, all NFL teams are required to trim down to 53 players each. Of the 19 rookies who were invited to that Bears camp that year, that training camp, the team would only keep around seven of those rookies. And Lovey Smith knew that. And so when he addressed the rookies that year, Uh, his challenge to them was, quote, make us put you on the team, unquote. Make us put you on the team. In other words, play so well in practice that the coaches couldn't imagine cutting you. Make us put you on the team, he said. Take the decision out of the coaches' hands and let your performance make the decision for us. You know, most religions around the world uh, adhere to Lovey Smith's philosophy of making the team. Most people of the world think that God makes the same sort of speech on how to get to heaven. In fact, I had a conversation this week with a couple of people who believed that they had to make the team by their performance. You want to make the team of eternal life. Let me put you on the team. Live such a good life. Do so many good deeds that I couldn't imagine rejecting you. Take the decision out of my hands, they think God is saying. And you know, what is counterintuitive, what the counterintuitive truth of the scripture says is that God works on a completely different basis than football coaches. Praise God, okay? 
People who think they can perform so well that they can make God add them to heaven's roster simply because they are deserving of it will be rejected. You got that? If you think your works are going to get you on heaven's roster, you will be rejected because that is not the good news of the Bible. This is the idea of salvation by works, and it is opposite of what the gospel is in Scripture. Salvation by grace through faith. God saves us by his grace. And remember, grace is unmerited favor. We don't deserve it, and it's by grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ. And again, the verse that saved me at age 28, for God so loved Gary that he gave his only begotten son, that if Gary believes in him, he will not perish but have everlasting life. I mean, I'm a slow learner, but it took me 28 years ago in the church before I realized that that was the truth. And God saved me. And read the Gospel of John. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. We don't make it by performance. And so, is Christ preeminent or simply prominent in your life? Are you responding in joyful worship? And then next week, we will look at some promises and God's blessings as we complete this psalm. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. I thank you for your grace and your mercy. I thank you for salvation by the Lord Jesus Christ. And I thank you, Lord, that we just need to believe in you for everlasting life, and it is ours. We thank you that you are a good, righteous, and holy God. And after we have believed in you for everlasting life, then you have called us to a life of obedience. You've called us to a life of uh, just growing in your promises, in your grace and mercy, and the knowledge that you desire the best for us. The fact that God loves us, that God, you are uh, for us, and you are coming to get us, and you are relentless. What an amazing God we have, and we thank you for that. Praise you for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we're going to observe the Lord's table. And as uh, most of our church family knows, our, one of our elders is moving away. And uh, the Crago family is moving to Spokane. Uh, I tried to intercede in that, but the mayor wouldn't even take my calls. And so uh, we're going to miss the Cragos. We'll have a little going away prayer in a moment. But uh, Wes has served as an elder for many years here, and he has preached for me. He has served uh, the Lord's table and out of his heart of service as his uh, final act as an official elder of Grace Point Church, he is going to lead us in the Lord's table. Come, my brother Wes, and lead us. Things from the rest of you fade away from the now. 